0: Hello, and welcome to the Signature Leadership Series podcast by KnowledgeHuck, a podcast where we explore the topics most relevant to senior education leaders around the world. I'm your host, Jennifer Adams. I'm a former superintendent of a large, highly diverse, publicly funded school district in Ottawa, Canada. I was really fortunate throughout my career to have many great opportunities for professional learning and we want to extend that to you. Working with Knowledge Hook, a Canadian digital math company, we are supporting thought leadership across four key pillars. The first pillar is Education 2030 or what the global trends in education are right now. Our second pillar is future skills, what employers are looking for in our students. Our third pillar is social-emotional learning to complement those academic skills that we know are critical. And finally, improving math, but up at that higher or more strategic level where school and district leaders play. Today's show is focused on formative assessment. For decades, academics have identified formative assessment as arguably one of the most effective strategies for improving student learning. In recent years, that's also been proven to be the case for student well-being. And who better to speak about formative assessment than Dylan William. Dylan William is Emeritus Professor of Educational Assessment at University College London. Many of you will know his work. He worked as a Senior Research Director with ETS in the U.S., before returning to the UK as Deputy Director of the Institute of Education, University of London. He has written many books and many research articles, and it goes without saying that Dylan is one of the leading authorities globally on the topic of assessment. Dylan, welcome. Thrilled to have you here. Great to be here. We're going to talk a little bit about formative assessment, and uh, you've been doing such great work in this for so many years. Why is formative assessment so important in the classroom? are
1: several cases you could make for formative assessment. One is an intuitive case. Fifty years ago, David Azubel pointed out that the most important single factor influencing learning is what the learner already knows, and that effective instruction needs to ascertain that and teach accordingly. The problem is that students do not learn what we teach, and therefore, because student learning is unpredictable, you need to find out what they did learn before you do anything else you could make an empirical case. If you look at the round of PISA that was conducted in 2015, one of the things they did was to look at what kinds of classroom practices, what kinds of classroom features were correlated with high student achievement. And as you might expect, schools found that when students were affluent, their achievement was better. But after uh, affluence and poverty, the single most important factor associated with high achievement in the PISA dataset was teachers making adjustments to their instruction in the light of evidence from students about what was going on in their heads, what they call the index of adaptive instruction. Uh, Paul Black and I did uh, an extensive review of research in this area, uh, basically bottom up looking at feedback and how we might embed better feedback into classroom settings. We found that the evidence pointed very clearly towards this idea of formative assessment, assessment used to improve instruction
0: Dylan, all of us as senior leaders are concerned about equity for our students. It's a a topic that we really agonize about. We want all of our students to walk out of our school systems doing really well. Can formative assessment play a role in equity of outcomes?
1: If you think about what it is that the research shows has the biggest impact, particularly for closing the poverty-related achievement gap, then you find three things. You You find that engaging students in their own learning what psychologists call self-regulated learning, engaging students' as resources for one another, what some people call cooperative or collaborative learning, and feedback. Those are the three most cost-effective measures for closing the poverty-related achievement gap. And those are three of the five strategies that we choose for formative assessment. And so there are these different perspectives on formative assessment, all of which point towards this as being the most powerful focus for teacher learning and to improve student achievement.
0: It's really helpful, uh, Dylan, certainly as le- senior leaders in education systems in school districts and in ministries. You know, over the last 20 years, we've really been looking at what are the kinds, what are those high yield strategies that really have an impact on, on how mm-hmm. students are learning and, and, and their sense of well-being as well. And what I think is interesting with formative assessment, we used to really look at it strictly as the learning part. And I think what we're seeing in the, ne- in the last few years is also the connection to well-being because the more the teacher interacts with students and gets a sense of where they are as, a, as, a, as an individual as well as where they are with their learning, it actually reinforces the well-being part and not just the learning part. So it's really, it's, it's absolutely contemporary and I think we're seeing both sides of that now.
1: But we're also finding... Um, as a European Union project has recently done, that actually attention to formative assessment as part of social and emotional learning is also powerful. So I think that the academic and the social and emotional perspectives reinforce each other. And, you know, it comes down to something very simple. You're going to make better decisions as a teacher when you have better evidence about what your students are doing, thinking and feeling, And that means you need formative assessment.
0: Yeah, it makes it makes somewhat sense. And uh, the leadership series is actually going to be focusing on um, SEL in the the coming months. So that will be really helpful to see the connection with that. So what does that look like in the classroom? And, you know, particularly, Dylan, we're in the midst of a pandemic and uh, we've got a lot of school closures, lots of people doing things uh, remotely. And, you know, even when kids come back into school, there's going to need to be some real TLC when they do come back. So what does formative assessment look? like in a math classroom
1: well i think whether you're online or face-to-face i think the crucial feature of effective formative assessment is teachers having better evidence about what's happening in students heads so they can make better instructional decisions so if you take the face-to-face case first typically a math teacher dozens of times a day will make a decision about whether to go on or to repeat a point point. and traditionally this has been done by the teacher making up a question on the spur of the moment asking the class Maybe six students raise their hands. The teacher chooses one of those students. And if that student gives a correct answer, the teacher will often say, good, and move on. So the mm. assumption is either that everybody else gets it or now they've actually heard the correct answer, so now they get it. And so when we're thinking about formative assessment is expanding the evidence base that teachers have for their instructional decisions. Forty years ago, Madeline Hunter talked about the importance of what she called frequent checks for understanding. But the problem is that those checks for understanding If conducted with a choral response or only hearing from two or three students. Those kinds of approaches don't give teachers good quality evidence about what's happening in the students' heads. So really the best way to think about formative assessment is getting teachers better evidence for their instructional decisions. Better instructional decisions lead to better learning for students. And so if you want to know what this looks like in a classroom, well, you'd be actually seeing the teacher regularly eliciting evidence from students not just the usual suspects, the confident, articulate individuals, but making sure they're getting evidence from everybody so they can make better decisions that meet the whole class's needs. In an online setting, um, it's more challenging, of course, but in some ways also simpler. But the fundamental idea applies in any instructional setting, Better evidence leads to better decisions, better decisions lead to better learning.
0: Yeah, it's really, it's really a, a pretty tight concept and, and actually pretty logical, right? Um, it's pretty logical. The more that we know about where they are in their learning, the better we can adapt our instruction to make sure that that's happening. You talk about um, the idea of assessment for learning and formative assessment. Tell me a little bit about that. What's, what's the difference? How do they relate to each other? The term formative
1: assessment has been around for quite a while. Um, Michael Scriven first proposed the formative-summative distinction in 1963, but he was focusing on the word summative um, as an alternative to formative. So Paul Black and I have been reviewing research in this area for about 30 years now. And we actually quite like this idea of formative assessment as being an assessment that forms the direction of future learning instruction in particular. Some people don't like that term formative. And so in the 1990s, there was uh, an upsurge of interest in this term assessment for learning. But the problem is that term was defined very broadly. So the idea of assessment for learning is any assessment whose prime priority is to improve learning rather than certifying competence or selecting students for future phases of education. But that means that assessment for learning is very broad. Let me give you some examples. If I tell my students that there's going to be a test on Friday, and they choose to prepare for that test by studying, then that assessment will have improved the learning, even if I don't actually give the test, because now the assessment has caused the learning. If assessment is demotivating, students fail, and it harms students' future progress, then again, that fails to be a good assessment for learning because of the motivational consequences. If I do give the test, but then don't grade it, actually, it turns out still to be beneficial, because the research on memory from people like Robert Bjork Um, and Elizabeth Bjork show that just retrieving things from memory, sitting down in a test and completing the test, whether it's graded or not, improves your long-term memory. So all those things are examples of assessment for learning because it's assessment that's conducted primarily for the purpose of improving learning. But I would say that assessment for learning only becomes formative assessment if the information generated by the assessment is actually used to make instructional decisions that are better than the ones they would have made without that evidence. So the idea is that, of course, we have hunches about whether students get it or not, but our hunches are ungrounded, unless we get evidence about what's really going on in their heads.
0: You talk about different cycles for formative assessment. Um, and you know, I'm thinking of the, the senior leaders, you know, whether it's math consultants or superintendents or assistant superintendents that are listening to this podcast. That idea of, you know, how do we help teachers understand that there are cycles of formative assessment, and how would we as senior leaders um, help to push those practices into our classrooms and throughout our schools?
1: When I moved to the United States, I discovered that the term formative assessment was used for something over a much longer cycle. So typically, a district would hire a testing company to test their students every six to ten weeks, and would produce displays of data that showed which students were on track to pass the state test or the the provincial test in a a few months' time. That's a good thing to be doing. Any well-run organization should be able to monitor its progress towards its goals. If I was a principal, I would not accept the bland assurances of the teachers that everything's on track. I'm reminded of uh, Edwards Deming's lovely phrase, in God we trust, all others bring data. So, you know, if I was a principal, I'd want evidence that the students really are learning what we want them to be learning. So I think there is a case for that long cycle formative assessment. Every six to 10 weeks, we do need high quality evidence about whether students are actually making progress. We also need to involve the students more in the assessment progress, the assessment process, sorry, which is exemplified by the work of Richard Stiggins, who talks about student-involved assessment. So I often ask teachers, you know, if a student gets a C for a piece of work, what do they say? Do they say I got a C or do they say she gave me a C? And many teachers respond by saying she gave me a C because the students don't understand the grading process. The students think the grades are arbitrary and capricious and therefore they think the grade is a judgment by the teacher about whether they even like the student. If you can externalize the grading criteria, if you can share the standards with the students, then grading becomes something that's done with students rather than to them. Students feel more agency. And therefore, they know what they need to do to improve their grades. And that process of student-involved assessment is another important component of formative assessment that I call medium-cycle formative assessment. But there's no doubt that the evidence we have available right now suggests the biggest impact comes when it happens on an even shorter timescale. So I'm not saying that one of these is better than the others. I think we have to do all three. We have to monitor student progress. We have to involve students in the grading processes that we use to report back to parents so that... Key stakeholders, but we also need to make better instructional decisions, minute by minute and day by day. And so, I think the, the, the challenge for, for um, administrators is to get the balance of those three processes right, because they all have to be happening, and they have to stop interfering with each other. But we can't afford to just neglect one or two of them and focus on, on the third. We have to f- have all these things working in a kind of synchromesh. And that, I think, is the role of district leaders: is to is to envision. How might a district function when all of these kinds of assessment systems are working in harmony rather than cutting across each other?
0: And that's actually the beauty of it because um, it means that all of us have a role in formative assessment and that the classroom teacher is doing it in the classroom on that very quick, you know, daily intervention plus at the end of units, et cetera, but that we as district leaders also have a role to play in that and that we need to be doing formative assessment on what's happening with student performance across our entire system. And what's the best ways of knowing that I think as a, as a a chief superintendent or director of education, that was always really good messaging when we could go out in front of our teachers and, front of our school principals and say we're all in this together we all have mm-hmm. a role to play and we're looking to get that right balance of those three different types of formative assessments it brings the district together it makes people feel like they're connected to the people that are in the different roles so that's that's really helpful um any anything that you want to add with with that on that topic uh dylan
1: well i think the, the role of district leaders in particular. I think that the important one is the setting up of what you might call self denying ordinances. So let me give you a cautionary tale. I was in one school district where they wanted formative assessments and they wanted to actually test the students every Friday to make sure the students were following the pacing guide and the teachers were actually adhering to those kinds of practices. So they decided they would institute a test every Friday and it was designed entirely formatively. our students learning what they need to be learning? However, the teachers saw this as a verdict on their own instruction. And so on Wednesday and Thursday, they started preparing kids for the Friday test. And so this idea of having monitoring progress on a Friday actually took up 60% of the available curriculum time because basically instruction happened on Monday and Tuesday and then it was test prep on Wednesday and Thursday and testing on Friday. If we are too intensive about our data collection, if, we, if we're going to collect every piece of information that teachers collect... For their instructional purposes, then we may actually drive the good stuff underground or even drive it out completely. So I think what district leaders need to be saying is we don't want all the data. We just want data at the right point. Everybody in the system has information needs and the well-designed system gives them the information they need for the, part, for the parts of the process that they're responsible for. And sometimes we're, you know, so district leaders need to say to teachers, we don't want the minute and minute, by day, day by day stuff. That's your responsibility, you use that. And we'd like to know that you're doing it, but we don't need to see the results. Those formative assessment processes do not need to be recorded in any way. I think that kind of clear leadership from district leaders about what they need to know about and what they don't need to know about can be very helpful in minimizing workload for teachers and also making teachers feel more secure about taking chances rather than just slavishly following a pacing guide.
0: That's such a perfect example of the slippery slope of measurement and that it starts off with good intentions yep. and if put in place with the wrong type of messaging behind it or the wrong type of reporting behind it it can be disastrous to student learning and uh, i agree 100 percent it's that idea of the district leaders the school leaders are really responsible to make sure that their teachers are hearing those messages that what counts is good instruction in the classroom And formative assessment is a way of making sure that happens. And, um, you know, in, in Canada, I think we've done a fairly good job as far as there's an understanding that we need large scale assessment to make sure, you know, that we know in the districts where our students are with learning. But we're really careful with our messaging as far as when we're reporting out on that, we talk about the number of different ways that we know about what's happening with student achievement. And those large scale assessments are one piece of evidence. Um, The qualitative uh, information from students, even on those uh, large-scale assessments, we ask questions about how students feel about mathematics, about uh, what's happening uh, as far as, do they have any connections to it outside of the classroom? Those are the kinds of things that then inform us about the kinds of things that we need to be doing in our districts and schools. circles back to the responsibility of the district leader or the senior education leaders. We're responsible for policies. We have to implement policies by our departments of education or by our ministries of education, but the messaging that we put in, that we, how we talk about that in our systems will drive the comfort level that teachers have to be doing the right things in the classrooms.
1: Right. And a very important principle then is don't collect information more often than things are changing. So at the district level, you don't wanna be collecting information every week because learning doesn't happen that fast. So basically only collect information at a frequency that means that something is likely to have changed or should have changed. So therefore you see these much longer cycles of, for the superintendents because they need to be monitoring progress on that sort of timescale. But teachers need much finer grain information. But I think that idea of don't measure things more often than they're changing helps you get the focus of, of the grain size of the different levels of the system more approximately right.
0: That's a really great point and uh, pretty, pretty easy to, to understand and uh, something that will remain with the superintendents and, and leaders that are, that are listening to this podcast. Let's circle back. You talked about the five strategies of formative assessment, and let's just go for a walk through each one of those and just give a, little, a couple of examples of what that would look like. And again, how would math consultants, how would senior leaders kind of push that idea? So you started off with the first one being learning intentions and criteria for right. success, and that's a, a major fundamental fundamental. fundamental shift of what classroom learning looks like. Teachers have done such a good job with that. Give us an example of what that looks like.
1: I often used to ask teachers, what are your learning intentions for this lesson? And they say things like, I'm going to have the students do this, I'm going to have the students do that. And I said, no, no, those are the activities you're going to engage students in. What are they going to learn as a result of this process? So that's where the idea of learning intentions is so important. Unfortunately, in the US and in Canada, it's become a bit of a shibboleth uh, now becoming almost like an, assess- uh, 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 an obsession. that teachers post up learning intentions because they're told to, and they, they copy them onto the board, the students copy them onto their notebooks, and they simply to ignore it for the rest of the lesson. But if an administrator walks past you safe, there is a learning intention up on the wall. So I'm very careful to distinguish between learning intentions, which is the reason you're doing this thing, and success criteria. So the learning intention is why you're doing this as a teacher. I think that teaching should be an intentional process. But the real problem with learning attentions is that learning is a change in long-term capability. And therefore, you cannot check on learning in the lesson. There's simply no way you can do that because learning is a change in long-term capability. You can only check on learning by seeing students remember it in two weeks' time. So the role of success criteria are a kind of, I'll be happy if. So when I get to this point in the lesson and the students seem to be able to do this, I'll stop, I'll say, we've done enough on this, now we can move on to something else. So the success criteria are your stopping criteria by saying yes, if 95% of the students can do this on their own, unaided, then I'll be happy with that and we'll move on to something else. So the important point is that learning intentions are descriptions of learning, success criteria are descriptions of the performance of students in the lesson, in the learning task, and that gives teachers useful, actionable information.
0: It's really interesting, an interesting clarification between the two and I I really like that idea, I'll be happy if. Um, That's something that teachers can keep in their minds and that's something that principals as they're walking through classrooms, they can kind of get a sense of if the the rhythm of the lessons are going that way. That's great. Your second strategy is about eliciting evidence and we've talked a little bit about that already. Again, in in a remote learning situation, um, some examples of what that looks like. You talked about the idea of giving a multiple choice question and if right. the teacher is doing video conferencing to be able to hold up one finger, two fingers, three fingers. Any other suggestions as what that could look like?
1: It spans the entire gamut from um, just the, the, the individual conversation between a teacher and a student. Uh, and one thing we found particularly valuable, particularly in math is making statements rather than asking questions. It turns out that when teachers make statements rather than asking questions, students tend to give longer and more thoughtful responses. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we always talk about Q&A sessions in our classrooms, but often making statements leads to more powerful thinking. And then thinking about the questions that we ask when we do ask questions, what kinds of questions do we ask? And we often ask questions that we think, um, you know, are checking our understanding, and that's fine, but we don't ask enough questions that cause students to think. So for example, a question, one question I like with elementary school students is, um, can you have a triangle with two right angles? And because students don't know the answer, they have to think, it looks like a closed question. And to a, a, a high school student, it probably would be a closed question because they know there's a factual answer. But to other students, it might cause them to think. And in which case, whether it's closed or open is much less important than, is it a high order question or a lower order question? Is it causing students to recall or to think? And so I think careful attention to the kinds of questions that we ask can actually make a big difference to the kinds of evidence that we get from our students and indeed the kinds of thinking that they do in our classrooms. So um, one of the things we discovered is getting teachers to work collaboratively on good questions, improves the quality of the questions greatly. And right now, while people are sequestered, then finding mechanisms of sharing questions with other teachers can actually really kickstart this process. So teachers take other teachers' questions, refine them, and then improve them. And incidentally, um, one of the interesting features of math teaching in Pacific Rim countries, where teachers are often already teaching 13 to 15 hours a week, the time that they're spending with their colleagues is mostly spent on good questions. Mm -hmm. Thinking up good questions they can use to really find out if their students have understood something. And so a really important um, technique here is to start by teachers pooling misconceptions. So let's take a simple concept like the medium of a data set. So what are the misconceptions? Well, one, that students think that if there's an even number of data points, there is no medium, or there are two. Some students will actually just find the middle numbers without arranging them in order. Some of them get confused with the range. And so what you might do then is to give students eight data points, and then give them a multiple choice question where all the misconceptions are represented in the possible responses. It's what Philip Sadler calls a distractor-driven multiple choice question. In other words, we start from misconceptions, then we write the answers that the students with the misconceptions would give, then we write the question, and only then do we write the correct solution. And so that process of designing high quality, distractor-driven multiple choice questions is a very powerful process getting better evidence about student learning so we can make better decisions about what to do next.
0: It's a great suggestion for, you know, the professional learning communities are obviously moving online. And those are yeah. some, some things that teachers could be working on together that would easily uh, work in that remote uh, Uh, Remote learning uh, environment. That's a great suggestion. Your third strategy was feedback that moves learning forward and and you just have to look at the Face of the student that is getting feedback and you can actually see them thinking when that oral feedback is coming and they're reflecting on what the teacher is saying So tell us a little bit about that.
1: I think the mistake we made with feedback particularly math is to think of feedback as being intended to improve the students work So the teachers will often correct students' work. Now there's no point in teachers correcting students' work because now the teacher's doing the intellectual heavy lifting. So uh, I now suggest to teachers that the purpose of feedback is not to improve the work, it's to improve the student. In other words, the purpose of feedback is to help that student do a better job on a similar task at some point in the future. So for example, rather than putting a check against some of these solutions and uh, cross against others, you actually say to the students, five of these are wrong, you find them, you fix them. So the idea here, the principle is that feedback should always be more work for the recipient than the donor. And by thinking about feedback as improving the student and not improving the work that you're looking at, I think it helps teachers make smarter decisions about what kinds of things to say to students. It's
0: also yeah. a great... Um uh, way of having student engagement because right. that type of feedback really engages the learner in what their job is which is the thinking and the application of the math concepts so a great one for that. In your fourth strategy you talk about students as learning resources for one another and again from a student engagement when they're actually interacting with each other as resources that's a great way of upping uh, their involvement in learning mathematics So, Right, I mean peer tutoring
1: uh, which is a specific uh, kind of collaborative learning or cooperative learning. And it gets a bad press from when students are explaining things to each other. Parents of gifted students often think that their darling genius is being held back. They're being made to explain it to the slower children. Whereas in fact, the research shows that often the greatest beneficiary of these processes are the students who give help, not the ones who um, get help. So there's, there's, there's clear evidence that giving help to others can be very helpful, can be beneficial. But the recent research has clarified it has to be from memory. So if, you, if a, a higher-achieving student leads a lower-achieving student through a page of a textbook, for example, then that might help the lower achiever. It's unlikely to help the higher achiever because they're not having to retrieve things from their own memories. The benefit of peer tutoring is when you're forced to think through things yourself from your own memory to think through ideas more, more clearly. So there's that, I think, is an important caution for the benefits of peer tutoring. Expanding it more broadly to collaborative learning in general, I think the work of the Johnson brothers and Robert Slavin shows pretty clearly it's really hard to do very well. So many teachers think that if students are working together on a problem, then it's cooperative learning. And you can call it that if you want to, but it's not going to be effective. What the research shows is two criteria need to be present for this to be effective. One is group goals, so that students are working as a group, not just in a group. And the other is individual accountability
0: the group working together and learning together and how do they contribute. That Those skills of collaboration and uh, demonstrating accountability, they're part of broader skills. So not only is math classroom helping to uh, develop the, the numeracy skills that students need to have, but also that broader set, set of skills that are very much part of that future skills package that we're looking at now. So that's great. Right. The final one, uh, just to circle back to, is the idea of students owning their learning. And uh, we see such an impact when students, when kids connect to what they're learning and they feel that they have choice and they can be uh, running forward with it. What's the role of of form of assessment in that?
1: I think we have to be very careful here. There's been a rush towards self-regulated learning and metacognition as a result of some fairly high-profile studies that have shown how important they are for effective achievement. And so some teachers have implemented this in formative assessment um, contexts by, for example, asking students to do a self-assessment. Give yourselves a traffic light. Give yourself a green if you're confident you've got it, a yellow if you're not so sure, a red if you're really confused. And people think that's formative assessment. Well, I don't. I think it's an assessment of some kind, I suppose. But the important point is, learners don't know what they don't know. And this has been brought clearly to focus by some work by two psychologists, uh, David Dunning and Justin Kruger. It's now called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And it's now been well demonstrated that the less you know about something, the more likely you are to overstate your own level of knowledge. So novices don't know enough to know that they don't know very much. And so we should encourage this process of self-assessment, but we shouldn't necessarily rely on it as teachers. I think the difficult balancing act is to get students self-assessing, of course, but, not trusting that if the student says they've got it they've got it and there's an interesting set of stepping stones here so self-assessment is emotionally charged it's it's uncomfortable it's painful we don't you know many of us don't like rereading our own work and so what we found most useful is to have some steps towards that so the stepping stones are peer assessment of anonymous work peer assessment of actual peers work from your own classroom and then self-assessment because When students assess the work of others, they can internalize internalize the criteria for success in the context of a piece of work that is less emotionally charged. And then they are able to apply that to their own work. But if we actually start with giving students a rubric or a, a marking guide, and then say assess your own work, it's just emotional overload and cognitive overload. So separating those processes by having these stepping stones assessment of anonymous peers' work, assessment of real peers' work, and then self-assessment, can actually make it a much smoother journey into getting students to take more ownership of their own learning.
0: That's interesting. I haven't heard it spoken to in, in the idea of those stepping stones towards it, but um, you know that whole concept of rubrics and being able to have students see what, 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 are the, what are the pieces that make this good work, what does good work look like? Right. And uh, when we have teachers and when we're walking through classrooms as principals or as district leaders, and we hear students able to talk about what does good work look like, we know that great assessment practices are happening in those classrooms. And when we start to see that happen, that a whole culture within a a school is changing where you're walking, if it's a high school, you're walking into different subject area classrooms. If it's an elementary school, you're walking into different grade levels and you're actually hearing students use that language, we know that we're at a point where we're having a a, a strong culture of, of formative assessment in our schools. Absolutely. A huge thanks to Dylan William for sharing his expertise on formative assessment. He did a great job of describing to teachers how they can be getting at that in the classroom and in a remote learning environment. And really importantly, giving us as senior education leaders some advice on how we can support our teachers to do that important work. If you've enjoyed this talk, uh, we have an exciting new episode, which is the second part of this conversation on Dylan, and he will go deeper into some of those conversations. So please join us for that. Thank you to all of you for listening to this podcast, and we look forward to being with you again.